Lord, we thank you for this morning, the time to gather in your name and worship, uh, just to enjoy your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, let your presence be here and open our hearts and minds to your word that we might experience the true joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the title of this message is Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God. Now, if you're a literature guy like I am, I'm, my bachelor's is in English, um, so I studied a lot of American literature, uh, British literature, all that stuff. So there's a sermon that was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards that was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, and for the last, what, 300 years, almost, that sermon has been an important part of American religion. It's still taught as part of the curriculum in high school and in college as, a, as an example of early American literature. And so even though it's, there's a lot of separation of church and state, this sermon, uh, because Jonathan Edwards was such a good writer, became this image that is embedded in American society. Um, and it's had a big impact on how people think of who God is in our world. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. So let me just read you a paragraph from this sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some other loathsome insect over the fire. He abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. Now, this sermon was part of what was credited in Jonathan Edwards' preaching at the time is credited with starting the first great awakening in America, the first great revival in the United States. And do you hear the language there about the wrath of God? Because of his preaching, things were so, some people got so despondent, so broken by their fear of God, they committed suicide. He had several of his parishioners, his uncle included, that killed themselves. Now, the fear of the Lord, this wrath of God, was so great in the populace at that time, it sparked the first great awakening. But I'd like to talk with you today that that's the wrong image of God. Now, Jonathan Edwards did go on to tell people about through Jesus Christ you could be saved and you could avoid the wrath of God. And a lot of people did get saved. But their salvation was built around avoiding God's wrath, of escaping the fires of hell, and not based on the love of God and his goodness and faithfulness and kindness. 
And so within their imagination, while they were saved, they were still, de- still dealing with this idea that I'm going to make God angry at some point. I'm going to screw up at some time, and God's going to be angry with me, and all of a sudden I'm going to be that spider again that he's dangling over the pit of hell. And I think as Christians, we still deal with that a lot, even our relationship with God, that there's a part of that in us that says, God is angry with me. God uh, is out to get me. God is just waiting for me to screw up so that he can send punishment my way. And I think because of that, the devil is often just waiting to insinuate that into our lives. Even as believers today, we suffer in our relationship with God. Our beliefs don't have to be true to shape our lives. They can be a lie that shape our lives just as much. Jesus pointed out how these wrong views of God shape our relationship with him. In several parables, he tells stories about people who, because of their wrong views, do the wrong thing. Let me show you some of these. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 29, Jesus tells the parable of the trusted servants. Again, he says, there was a man who was going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags, to one he gave two, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags gained two more. But the one man, the man who received one bag, went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the man who had received five bags uh, brought the master of the other five and said, you entrusted me with five and, and here I have gained five more. And the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I'm going to give you much more. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man with two bags also came and he said, You entrusted me with two bags, and I give you two more back. And the master replied again, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, and I'm going to put you in charge of a whole lot more. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who received one bag came and said, Master, I know you are a hard man. You harvest where you didn't sow, And you gather where you have not scattered seed. So this is what I did. I was afraid. And I went and hid the money you gave me in the ground. So here it is. What you have given me, I give back to you. And his master replied. You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown. And and you, you think that I gather where I don't scatter seed. Well, then you should have at least put my money on deposit at the bank so I could have gotten a little bit of interest. 
So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Now in this story that Jesus tells about these three servants, there's one master. He's the same master for all three of them, right? But they all have some different views. At least the third person, the third servant has a different view of the master, it seems, than the first two. How did the third servant view the master? What was his view? How did it differ from the other two servants that we read about? How did it affect his behavior? Was it true? The third servant said, I know you to be a hard man. I know that you reap where you don't sow, that you harvest where you don't plant seeds. But was that the true character of the master? I mean, to me, as we read the story, the master comes along and he entrusts his wealth to three different people. When you're entrusting something that you value, you don't, you know, you're taking a chance, right? He's willing to share his goodness with others. He does it each according to their ability. So he has some wisdom about him. He's not trying to be hard-nosed. He's just trying to say, well, you do a good job, I'll give you five. You do a little bit not as good, I'll give you two. Each according to his ability. And when the people came back with what they had produced, he recognized them, right? He praised them. That's not a hard-nosed man to me. He didn't say, well, you brought me five. Why didn't you bring me ten? He didn't say to the guy who brought back two when he had sown two, why didn't you bring me three? He wasn't critical. He praised them. He recognized the hard work that they had done. And he said, I'm going to put you even into more. I'm going to promote you even more because of your faithfulness. This is not a hard man. This is not somebody who doesn't harvest where he hasn't sown. He is sowing into these people according to their ability, right? And even in the end, he says, come and share your master's happiness. This is a generous master who is saying, I want to promote you. I want what's good for you. I want you to be able to share in this enjoyable life that I have. But that's not the way the third servant saw the master. And what was the result of that? He was afraid, and he hid what he had been given in the ground. And so we have to be careful about what is in our heart. What do we believe about the master, and how does that shape our behavior and our thoughts about what's going on? Jesus picks up this same theme in the story of the prodigal son. And that we see that the, the, the image that each one of the sons, the younger son and the older son, have of the father is not truly the father's character, but it's what they believe about him. And so their beliefs about him shape their response and their relationship with the father. This is in Luke 15, 11 through 32, if you want to follow along. Jesus continued... 
There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. When the father was asked for something, he gave it. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to feed his pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Pretty destitute, right? And then he came to his senses. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So, you know, at this point, what was the younger son's view of his father? At least he had a view that if I asked my father to give me my inheritance, he'll do it. And at this point, he realizes, man, the servants in my father's household are better off than I am at this point. His father's hired servants have food to spare. He must... His father must have at least been as generous with his servants that they had in abundance, right? He wasn't stingy with the servants in his household. And so the younger son says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And this is where you begin to see the true character of the father, right? He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. How great is the father's love for the son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You begin to see the image, the character of this father, his great love for his children, his generosity, his forgiveness, For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house and he heard the music and the dancing, he called one of the servants and said, what's going on? And they answered, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now here's a father who not only loves the younger son, but loves the older son as well. And is willing to leave the festivities to come and try to talk with 
and appease the anger of the older son. But, but the son answered his father, Look, all these years I have slaved for you. What does that imply about the older son's idea of the father? He's a taskmaster. He's someone that requires, maybe values the son's work over the relationship with him. The son has a view of the father that is different than the character of the father. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Was that the way he thought the father would love him? His obedience? Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Now here is a father who is generous enough to give the younger son his inheritance before he's even dead, and yet the older son believes the father is so stingy he couldn't even get a goat to celebrate with his friends. The older son's view is different than the, view, than the character of the father. But then when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now the older son doesn't directly accuse the father of anything, but you hear it in his words, that in his heart, his, he sees his father as... Injust, unjust, uncaring, stingy, oppressive. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here again, the character of the heart of God. Focusing not on the sins, not on the wrath, not on the judgment, but on the redemption, on the forgiveness, on bringing back into relationship. When we hold a view of God that is false, the wrong belief becomes an open door to the devil to deceive us. Like the third servant who had false ideas about the master or the sons who had false ideas about their father, we often have false ideas about God that undermine our relationship with him. This is really, when we go back to Genesis, what is the heart of Adam and Eve's fall. Now, if you think about it, before the serpent came and spoke to Adam and Eve, what was their experience of God? God had created them in his image. He had given them authority and dominion over the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air. He had put them in a garden. He had made companions for them, for Adam and Eve to be together. It was one of blessing. Michelle, if you'll put up that image. This is kind of a visual parable. As you look at this picture, maybe some of you have probably seen this. It's a paradigm shift. But this parable, visual parable, is how I think maybe Adam and Eve saw God. 
at that point. It's a beautiful lady. She's kind of looking back over her shoulder, but it's a pretty distinct image, right? You can see uh, her necklace on, tip of her nose, eyelash. Um, It's a clear image, not confusing. All of us kind of recognize this. So like this, Adam and Eve's image of God, their experience of God up to this point was one of blessing, uh, one of God has provided for us, God has given us authority, God has loved us and put, made us in his image. But the serpent comes along and begins to put ideas into their heart and into their imagination that's a little different. In Genesis 3, it reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from him, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now in that passage, the serpent doesn't come out directly and say negative things about God, does he? He just kind of insinuates, uh, you won't really die. So is God a liar? God doesn't tell the truth? That inserts that little idea into their imagination. A A little later, the serpent says, you know, God knows you will be like him, but they're already like him. It insinuates the idea that God is holding back on you, right? God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And so the serpent begins to shift the image of God in their thoughts. So Michelle, if you'll go to the next one. So first their view was like this of God. Clear, they saw the beauty of God. And here's how the serpent moved to help them see God. Hopefully. Okay.
Okay. I'll have some water. Yeah, let's have a sip of water too. As we wait on the image, what the serpent is doing here, at first Adam and Eve had a, a pure knowledge of God. As Adam and Eve then ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it brought in some confusion. It brought in some double-mindedness, right? It brought in the question, is God good or is God evil? Is God trustworthy or is he not trustworthy? Is God loving or is God mean? And so part of that idea of good and evil, the knowledge that we have of good and evil, the devil uses that to begin to to shape our thinking and to confuse us and to divide us in our relationship with God. And as a result, we are double-minded. And, and the, the thing is, is that the world is still built around the idea of this double-mindedness. Is that we still eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can hear this in the world that says, oh, you need to know evil in order to choose good. But that's a lie. That's part of the deception. Is that we only need to know God and his goodness. They say, oh, if you want to have peace, you need to study war. But that's part of that. You need to know good and evil. You don't need to know war in order to bring about peace. And this is what Jesus came to teach us and came to to show us is that we don't need to know good and evil. We can just know the goodness of God. And that's what really shapes our life. Part of what Adam and Eve lost in the garden that day was the ability to be single-minded in their devotion to God. They could no longer just see God as good, but because of what the devil was speaking into their lives, they saw God as both good and evil. By eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they brought confusion into their relationship with God. And their view of God became blurred and untrustworthy. We have those experiences too. When we think, oh, God is disappointed in me because I don't pray enough. Or God is angry with me because I lost my temper with my kids. Or God wants me to suffer because of my past sins. Or God has abandoned me. Or God hates me because I gave in to temptation. These are all feelings that come out of an experience with God that the devil is speaking into our lives. None of these are true. God is not disappointed in you. He's not angry with you. He doesn't desire that you suffer. He he has not abandoned you. And he doesn't hate us. Jesus came to correct all of these ideas about God. He came to reassure us that God loves us, period. Nothing less than the love of God for you. 
John 3.16 is that, you know, key verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that those who believe on him might be saved. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him. And so this was one of the radical things that Jesus is teaching, is that God is not a God of wrath. God is not a God of judgment. God is a God of love. Jesus came to show us that God takes care of us because he loves us. Just as he takes care of the birds of the air, the flowers of the field. So Jesus taught, Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? And that's the key there, right? is that when we don't believe we are valuable to God, we don't feel like he sees us. We don't feel like he's going to provide for us, and we have to do it for ourselves. But he takes care of the birds of the air. He takes care of the flowers of the field. He goes on and says, Why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Our faith in the goodness of God, in his charity, in his provision, in his kindness is often very small. And our faith that God is going to judge us or that God is going to punish us seems to be very big. But Jesus came to dispel that. Worry is what happens when we don't believe in God's goodness. Worry comes when we believe that we are on our own in providing for ourselves. Jesus connects worry to a lack of faith in God's goodness. Jesus even taught that our heavenly father is much better than any earthly father we might have. In Matthew 7, he says, Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you would give good gifts to those that you love, how much more is God going to give good gifts to you? This is the image of God that Jesus came to talk about. It's not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's sinners in the hands of a loving Father. Jesus taught that God is good even to the ungrateful and the wicked. Jesus said in Luke 6, Love your enemies and do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, 
because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Does this sound like the God that Jonathan Edwards preached about? Let's revisit that passage. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, some loathsome insect over the fire, God abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like the fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. That's a very different teaching than what Jesus taught. But yet I think in our society, that image has been seared into a lot of our consciousness, into a lot of our hearts, that even though we have accepted the love of God, there is this part of us that the devil says, well, what about that sermon that helped spark the great awakening? Can you really trust God? He's going to get angry with you at some point because you're going to screw up. And when that happens, you better watch out. He's going to be that spider hanging you over the pit of hell. But that's not true. Jesus spoke about God very differently. Jesus spoke about a God who forgives, who redeems, who heals, who provides, who loves. This is the good news that is preached to you. This is why the angels sang at the coming of Jesus. And they announced to the world the end that God is angry, that God is full of wrath. They knew that Jesus would bring this revelation about the truth of God, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness, that God is love, and in him there is no hate, that God is life, and in him there is no death. Bringing that message to a world that suffers under the oppression of a wrong idea about God is wonderful. Don't let anyone preach to you a different gospel than the one that Jesus preached about who God is. About God's overwhelming kindness and goodness and love for you. Paul dealt with this in the early church. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, he said, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, and your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus he, we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Jonathan Edwards was a good man, but he preached the wrong gospel. In Galatians 1, 6 through 7, Paul again writes to that group, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. It's no good news. If someone is telling you that God 
hates you, that's not good news. If someone's telling you that God's disappointed in you, that's not good news. The gospel that Jesus brought is that God is light and in him there is no darkness. God is love and he wants to redeem you. He wants a relationship with you. Evidently, some people are throwing into, you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul writes to the Galatians. We need a deeper experience of God's love and goodness toward us. Something that is so profound that it transforms us. We don't need just knowledge, we need revelation. Something that is so powerful that we can't see the world the same anymore. This is the image that the devil wants us to believe in. What do you see in this image? Do you see a beautiful lady or do you see something else? How many see an old lady, ugly lady? About half of you. How many see the young, beautiful lady? Others. Can you see both? That's the trick of the devil. That's the knowledge of good and evil, right? There just needs to be enough confusion that the devil can say, oh, God's ugly. It's not the beautiful God anymore. It's not the pure God who is loving and kind, who blesses, who gives you authority, who puts you in a garden, who gives you companionship. The devil has insinuated just enough doubt into our hearts and our minds that he can say, God isn't really good, is he? God isn't really kind all the time. God isn't really trustworthy. Remember that time you prayed and it didn't work out. And so we have this idea that that we have the knowledge of good and evil, but the knowledge of good and evil doesn't bring truth. The knowledge of good and evil brings the ability to be deceived. And so the devil comes in and says, don't focus on this part. Ignore that part and focus on this part, right? The way you see both images, if you look at to see the old lady, the necklace on the young lady is the mouth on the old lady, right? The cheekbone on the young lady is the nose on the old lady. Can you see it? The ear on the young lady is the eye on the old lady, right? Our brain can go back and forth between different images based on what we ignore and what we focus on, right? And so the devil comes and says, don't focus on that over there. Focus on this over here. Don't focus on the God's faithfulness. Focus on the times where you prayed and it didn't get answered or things didn't turn out like you wanted it to. And so the devil begins to insinuate into our minds and to our hearts lies about God. And so we become confused and we live with this image, is God good, is God not good? And we become double-minded in all that we do. Rather than single-minded, that God is good, God is kind, God is loving. In him there is no darkness, no shadow, no changing. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and I can trust him. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. 
John writes in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Here's the important part. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect in love. When we experience the perfect love of God and know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we don't need to fear anymore, right? Because we know God is for us. God has redeemed us. God has forgiven us. God is providing for us. So here's what I'd like you to take away from today. Ask God this week, what are the wrong ideas that you have in your heart and mind toward him? Listen for the times when you say that God is angry with you or disappointed or unhappy with you. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what deceptions are behind those statements. Pay attention this week to to when you begin to feel fear or worry or discouragement or hopelessness. Those are all signs that somewhere in your relationship with God, things have gone off track. Jesus said, worry means that you don't believe in the goodness of God for you. Fear means that you don't know of God's perfect love that is going to protect you and is going to be there for you. Discouragement means that you don't know that God's plans for you are good and not for evil, but he's going to bring you a future and a hope. When you feel hopeless, there is something in your image of God that says, God's not going to be there for me. That the world and the troubles that I experience in the world are more powerful than what God can do in my life. When Abraham was faced with perhaps the hopelessness of sacrificing his beloved son, one of the things that it says is that Abraham knew that God could bring him back to life. That there is nothing too powerful in this world that God can't overcome. And so we don't need to be hopeless. And so the fourth thing then would be, is I encourage you this week to, and then in the coming days, to read through the Gospels. And really pay attention to how Jesus talks about God. You will be amazed at how positive, how kind, how loving God is. And how different that is than what you read a lot about in the Old Testament about who God was. And, and, and the religious leaders of his day, they had an idea that God was vindictive and judgmental. God, Jesus talked about God as loving God as a kind God, as a God who redeems, and as a God who forgives. I pray that you may experience all of that as well. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you that you are good and pure and holy. Lord, we realize that we have had and believed bad ideas about you. Like the third servant Sometimes we think that you're a hard God. 
like the sons of the, the prodigal sons of the father, we have ideas that you're stingy, that you're holding back on us. We've listened to the words of the devil as he's talked about good and evil and that we need to be aware of you. We need to not trust you. And we've let those thoughts get into our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, we come today and we repent of those things. We say we don't want to live in the knowledge of good and evil anymore. We just want the knowledge of your goodness and of your faithfulness and of your kindness. So, Lord, be with us this week and just reveal to us where are those areas that we need to, to get rid of, those lies that, we need to be, that need to be broken, the deception that needs to be uh, uncovered and what we need to get rid of. Give us an experience of your perfect love that we might walk in the freedom and that we might live according to Jesus' teachings. In whose name we pray, amen. All right. Well, go in the peace of God and be happy. Amen.